I honestly was hobbling in. And with each mile that went by, I'm like, I'm still in the top 10. That's Uda Pipig, who's cheering on the side of the road over there. I just passed a hobbled Abdi Abdurrahman. He's a 208 marathoner. That guy up in front of me is Meb Kaflesky. And I remember catching Meb with 800 meters to go, and Meb went right back by me. And I had a moment of, oh, the dream was too much. And then I said, no, like, you're going to hobble back by him because this is the home stretch of the Olympic trials, and he's the reigning Olympic silver medalist. And that's the sort of thing you pray for when you're a kid to go back and forth with the Olympic silver medalists in the home stretch of the Olympic trials. What more could you want? So I think that was a big part of it is just that perspective. That's Nate Jenkins. And this is the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli. And this week, well, this week's episode is a special one for me. I sat down and had a fairly long conversation with my college rival, Nate Jenkins, one of the toughest competitors I've ever known and someone I raced against pretty regularly in the early 2000s when I was at Stonehill College and he was running for UMass Lowell. Nate was not a big star in college. He was never an All-American or anything like that. But after school, he went on to do some pretty amazing things in the sport, like finishing an incredible seventh place at the U.S. Olympic Trials Marathon in the fall of 2007, running a personal best of 214.56 in that race. And then he went on to represent the United States in the marathon at the World Championships in 2009. Personally and selfishly, I loved this conversation, and I hope you will too. In it, Nate recounts a few epic stories, including the NCAA Cross-Country Regional Championship in 2003, where he beat me by two seconds in one of the most exciting races that either of us has ever run. He told me how he knew he wanted competitive running to be a lifelong pursuit all the way back when he was in junior high school. Nate explained why he's a tough athlete to coach and a tough human being to be around in general. He talked about self-experimenting with training after college, going from a pure Arthur Lydiard approach to a Renato Canova-style marathon program, and what about that led to his big breakthroughs. We got into Nate's personality a bit and how it changes when he steps to the starting line on race day. Nate also recounts his experience at the Olympic trials back in the fall of 2007, where he finished seventh, quote-unquote, limping as hard as I could the last four miles. Along that line, Nate talks about runner's dystonia, which was the injury that ended his professional career. We also got into what his relationship with running, training, and competition looks like right now. Nate even turned the tables on me and asked a couple questions he's been holding on to for a while, and a lot more. Okay, let's dive right into this one with Nate Jenkins. I don't know exactly where this conversation is going to go. And as I said to you over email, I really want it to be more conversation than an interview. And I know we'll talk about races that we've run, your progression as an athlete, some coaching stuff. And we can even geek out about training for a little while uh, if we end up going I don't there. care what we talk about. I'm going to have a good time anyway you slice it. So. Yeah. So I, I have no agenda. Well, <laughs> let's dive right into it then. This is a conversation that I've honestly been waiting probably about 15 years to have. So Nate Jenkins, welcome to the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thank you. I think I've been waiting equally long for this one. So I'm excited. Where I want to dive in is by rewinding to the fall of 2003. 
And here's how I'm going to set this up. I was on the Cloud 259 podcast a couple weeks ago. One of the hosts, I believe it's Bren, but I'm not confident about that, is coached by you. And he asked me a question about the most memorable race that I've ever run or the best race that I've ever run. And with out hesitation. I go back to the regional cross country championship, fall of 2003, Franklin Park. I'm a senior at Stonehill College. You're doing your grad year at UMass Lowell. I'm going to be as objective as possible in my description here. You win the race, you run 3055. I finish two seconds behind you, 3057. Your team, UMass Lowell, wins the team championship. You go to nationals for the umpteenth time. Stonehill finishes second. We go to nationals for the first time. I shared my reflections on that race in that interview, and I have been dying for the last 17 years at this point to get your take on that day, that race, and how it played out. Yeah, I... I um, coach Greg and he messaged me as, as soon as they were done with that and told me like, when we get this up, you're going to have to listen. And I did. And I loved your description of it. It was so interesting because as much as I've had other races, um, since then, that is certainly one that was important to me. And, um, and it just, for whatever reason, it was, it was a perfect cross country day, wasn't it? It was a, it was a, a great new England cross country, uh, race and, um, it was fun. And so, it was very interesting hearing your perspective on it. Um, so yeah, so for me, I had I was a fifth year senior. I had been with a really good group of guys, and we'd sort of built a program. And they were mostly done. Um, a couple of them had track eligibility and were still training with us. But in terms of the cross country team, it was a new guard for us. Um, and the carryover was uh, Patrick Morass, who was a sophomore, I think, for us at the time, but had been just a uh, a star as a freshman um, and immediately had stepped right up into the top group on the team. And he'd been our top man all year. Um, And I had, I was frustrated by this. I was, you know, didn't want to lose to the kid. Um, And I think that I was so wrapped up in our team's goals of, you know, sort of what we wanted to do at nationals and making sure that there wasn't a big slip um, because when I had got to UML, they had had a period of, of really poor performances and we didn't want to sign a slip back into that. Um, and my personal goal of, you know, trying to get myself in front of this stupid sophomore that I, I didn't notice, I mean, how good you guys as a team were doing. And, um, on top of that, how good you were doing individually. And we obviously knew each other from Central Mass at that point. And so normally, I, I think I would have been more aware. But um, for whatever reason, I, I didn't come in until I think conference meet, you ran very well. Um, and it became obvious that you were going to be a guy that we had to worry about individually. And I think at conference, did you guys beat Bentley? We did. and Yeah, I want to say that that like, woke me up. I want to say that's what really sent me into that. Yeah. And that was the first time we'd ever done that. And to rewind a year, the year prior, the regional championship was at Van Cortland Park in New York. And we went into that one on our high horse and thought we were a shoe in for the second team. We knew we couldn't beat you guys, but we're like, we are going to get Bentley. And I'll never forget that day. I had a decent race. I think I was third or fourth. 
behind mm-hmm. your crew. And I remember looking back once I got in the shoot and it was like Ryan Agnew came in, Mike Killam came in from Bentley and I didn't see a purple jersey, which was our color at, at Stonehill for a while. And I was like, shit, it's not, yeah. it's not happening. So fast forward to 2003, like we were, you know, we were taking our, we were taking it a bit more seriously at that point, And we yeah. knew that we had to dot our I's and cross our T's and couldn't put the cart before the horse. Yeah. And I also think that in fairness to you guys, that previous fall, that regional race was the best Bentley team race. I think they put together in the time I was in college, they really packed very, very well. But, um, but yeah, I think that sort of came into that and we had talked, Gary, um, had taken over as the coach at UML, um, at that point, And he had told us, you know, basically you're nobody leads for two miles. I want this slow for two miles. Um, we're a young team. I don't want you guys making this into a war. I want this controlled and we're just getting, we're just checking the box and going to nationals for, uh, I think like four of our guys, it was the first 10 K they'd ever run. You know, um, Pat was very, very good, but he was still, I think he was only 18. He was a very young freshman. So he was 18, 19 years old. Um, so we were just definitely for most of those guys, they just didn't want to push. And this, kind of upset me because I wanted to win this race. And, um, the longer we waited, the more I figured it helped Pat out because he was much faster than me. Um, and if I was going to beat him or you, I felt like I needed to grind. So, um, the deal was we'll go to two miles. If it's really slow, we can go. If it's decent, then we've got to wait until Gary tells us we can go. And uh, I don't remember exactly what we split, but by college tend to charge out like mad dogs. I think we were fairly slow. I want to say we ran like 520-ish pace for the first two miles. Yeah, it wasn't that quick. There was a big yeah. pack. I actually found some photos of that race last week as I was digging some stuff out from under my bed. And it was a pretty big pack about two yeah, miles I into the say race. I want to say most everybody who who had anything was was still in the group. So we got to two and I expected, all right, at two miles – I'm going to shift gears and try to run a five minute mile and um, I'll be just sort of trying to grind down Pat and Mario. And instead Gary said we could go. And I felt like Pat ran the next 115 seconds. It felt like, like that. <laughs> My I was, point. Oh man. I felt like I was sprinting like a dog to hang with him. Well, someone lit a rocket under his ass and he just took yeah, off. I, I, I remember like, this, that very vividly to, to yeah. this day and being like, I'm glad that it wasn't just, just me who had that perspective. That's yeah. So, and then I think very much unfolded to what you described, which was the sort of, you got separated a little bit. And, um, I actually honestly thought I, 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 when you finished where you did, I was shocked because by three, four miles, when you weren't right with Pat and I, I assumed you'd gotten caught in no man's land and you were done, you know, because it's so much harder to run alone. To be and fair, that's I, exactly uh, how I felt. <laughs> yeah. I was I mean, in no man's land. Yeah, exactly. And so I thought that it was strictly down to Pat versus I. And, um, we were running well. Uh, I think we, we, despite the slow start, I want to say it was at that point, the fastest I had split run the eight kilometer course at Franklin park. Cause obviously in the, the 10 K you go past the finish line there. And I had kind of looked at my watch and, and I knew, okay. And I just decided I cannot beat Pat in a sprint of any distance. So it doesn't matter if I talk about kicking 
when we hit the field or when we take the last turn, Pat will beat me in a sprint. He had about 50 second quarter speed. I had about 60 second quarter speed um, and he could finish. He wasn't just a guy who had good speed when he was fresh. So I sort of considered the eight kilometer mark my last chance. And I really ratcheted it down. Um, and I ran that last woods loop um, in 5.55. So under six minutes for the, it's, it's probably a safe two kilometers. I think the, the, the distances at Franklin are all a little wonky, but I think the 10K and the 8K are equally short. Um, and I just was grinding. It was just, and I was pretty much done coming out of the woods, um, but feeling like I had done my job. I had the gap. I, I was running well. Um, and then people started screaming that you were coming. And I knew you had decent finish, um, certainly better than I expected to have. And I was really struggling. And I went by a guy, Dave Kremen, who was an alumni or is an alumni from UMass Lowell, who had been, he was the only four-time cross-country All-American we had. Um, and at that point, I have bad form as it is. And Gary had spent a year telling me to keep my head up. Just keep your head up, keep your head up. And I was kind of sprinting around the field trying to keep my head up. And um, this alumni, as I'm going by him on the field with maybe 300 meters to go, screams an expletive I won't repeat. Why is your head up? Put your head down and go. And um, <laughs> I was like, man, you know, if, 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 if the creme dog is telling me this, then it's law, you know? And I just put my head down and I remember... I think it caused me to lean forward a little bit and I instantly accelerate a little bit. And honestly, in retrospect, I think I only beat you because he yelled that. God, I think that was the two seconds I needed. Damn it, Dave Kremens. Um, yeah, you know, so that's that's uh, the only thing I think that, uh, that kept me out uh, those extra two seconds. But then for me, this race is actually not the end of the story. Um, for me, it was nationals and I ran abysmally at nationals and I thought you ran a masterpiece. Um, you ended up all American, correct? And I want to say you were right around 25th. Correct. I was 28th. Um, yeah. 28th, which I felt like was exactly where you belonged. I thought that you showed up and you ran the best you could on that day. And I felt like if I had run, you know, that I should have still finished, you know, in my head, two seconds in front of you. And that's where I belonged. Um, and I just remember really taking that to heart, um, that, you know, yeah, a regional championship matters, but be ready on the right day. Um, and I just really, really, I think if you had asked me at any point, you know, I would have guessed that you didn't even remember losing to me, that it didn't matter because on the day that did matter, you had delivered and I had you know, so I thought that was very interesting, especially in hearing you talk about it and how you won't, I don't even, you didn't even like humble brag your all American status on the 259 podcast, I don't think, which I definitely would have. So <laughs> you're a better man than me as well. Well, we didn't talk about the national race, which was two weeks after that regional. And yeah, it was my only all American race. I finished 28th. What I remember about that day in North Carolina, it was polar opposite of the regional race. It was hot. Mm. It was like 70 degrees or close to it by the time the race started. It went out really hard. I remember coming through the mile of that race somewhere way back in the pack in like 438. I was like, what did I get myself into? 
and mm. you came up that last hill to go into the stadium at SAS yes. Park in Raleigh, and and I was. I was done at that point. I was hanging on for dear life. I actually went down. I remember like actually kind of collapsing and picking myself up and dragging my ass into, you know, into the stadium. But I remember going by you and Pat and your whole crew at some point. And at that point, I didn't care where I finished as long as I finished ahead of you guys. That was my right. <laughs> that was my only goal that day because I was equal parts pissed and motivated after losing to you by two seconds at regionals because I could taste it. When I was coming around that field, right. I was like, I've got this son of a bitch because he is di- like, he's dying and I've got the momentum yeah. and everyone's going crazy, but geez, you held on. Um, and I mean, hats off to you. You earned it that day. You made the moves when they needed to be made. But the two weeks in between those races, I remember I had, I don't know if you remember, Cheryl Tworgy was the photographer, Shalane yeah. Flanagan's mom. Yeah. And I was looking for these photos the other day and I probably have them on an old hard drive somewhere, but she took a sequence of photos of the two of us coming around that last backstop with maybe hundred meters to go or whatever it is to the, to the finish. And you can see me getting closer with every stride and your whole body is completely contorted. I'm going backwards mm-hmm. cause I'm just, I'm full tilt and I, and I could not catch you. And you can see the look on both of our faces. Like you look like hell. I look like shit. And yeah. I remember taking one of those photos when they went up and I made it my screensaver on my computer <laughs> and I looked at it for two weeks and I was just like, he is not going to beat me at nationals. He is not going to beat me at nationals. <laughs> and I was just like really, really fired up. So once I passed you guys in the race, I'm like, I don't even care if I get All-American. As long as I beat the Lowell guys, I can go home happy. Um, right, right. I did my job. Yeah, I, I did I my job. And that's, yeah. that's, what I, that's what I remember about that. Um, but still, to this day, it's the most exciting race that I have ever been a part of. And I will, I will never forget like even right now talking about it i can i can think of various parts of that race and i remember exactly like where i was how i felt when mm-hmm. i couldn't see you when i could see you again um you coming closer and closer to me as we're we're going around the field and then just talking to karen after the race my my coach and she's like well mario you just ran out of real estate <laughs> yeah yeah and i mean it, yeah there's yeah i would say too i only have two or three college races that i really really remember and that is definitely one and like you said, yeah, I can remember a lot of that race. I'm thinking about nationals, um, and I wasn't in a good. Um, my brother had a lot of mental health issues, and he had a, had his first uh, suicide attempt. That uh, like I think the Friday we got down there, and I was just not in a good place. Um, so all I really remember from that race is two things. I remember um, Asensio Martinez from uh, Adams State mm-hmm. was on. They were on the line next to us, and Damian Martin. They were team favorites, and um, Damian Martin sort of left them. Uh, right before the start and Asensio calls everybody into the circle and he says, I'm going to score one F and point you guys do your job. Um, and he did, he won. And then, uh, the second thing I remember was, do you remember Will Banks from, uh, Western state? Yeah. Big, tall dude, big, tall dude, uh, very distinctive. Uh, and he had, um, I think he'd won NCAA's D2s the winter before in the mile. And I remember, going by him after that horribly fast first mile and being shocked that I'm going by him and looking down and he only has one shoe on and it was rough gravel. And I'm like, Oh God, you know, like he must've got his shoe kicked off. No wonder I'm going by him. And then as we came around on the next loop, he went back by me and now he had one trainer on and still had the other spike. So like one of the Western kids who was there to watch had just handed him a shoe 
No way. And I did not know this story. And put it on his foot. And I can remember just watching him over the last closing like mile or two slowly inch away from me and just being so crushed that this guy was going to co- overcome that kind of a day to be an All-American. And I was not. Um, and just feeling like, you know, I am such a whiner. Um, but those are literally, that's the only two things I remember from that day. Um, yeah, really at all. So I, I think it is. it does speak to how what the experience was like at that regional meet that I remember so much more of that. Well, I appreciate that perspective. It was a fun memory to relive. And there are many others. We could probably spend the next couple of hours talking about some of those. But looking back at your career, which I have as someone who has followed it since high school, you graduated from Narragansett Regional, which is in central Massachusetts, where I grew up. We were in the same conference in college we did a little bit of training together right out of school, and I've just generally been paying attention to what you've done your entire career. And that 2003 cross-country season and the subsequent track season that followed that, I look at as sort of a launching pad for the rest of your career. Because to that point, you'd had some good races and some solid performances, but had never really put it together. And you were on a great team. You had guys like Carl Meese or Kevin Elliott or Pat Morass, who you just mentioned, you know, who might edge you out in the shorter stuff. But it was that regional championship. And then I remember you qualified for nationals in the 5,000 in the track uh, that winter, which I believe was the first time that you went to, to nationals. And then post-collegiately you started taking off the the year after that but in in your recollection did that seem to be a turning point for you like that fall of 2003 winter of 2004 leading into the next few years where to spoil it for my listeners you ended up running you know 215 marathon going to the olympic trials finishing seventh eventually ended up on a u.s team that ran at the world championships i'd love to dig into that a little bit with you yeah, I think it was a turning point. Um, the year before, I had had a lot of injuries in college, basically from trying to push too hard too soon. And the year before had been a complete rebuilding year. Um, and I was finally staying healthy. I had been able to get healthy before. You, when you're a kid, you can always get healthy. Um, but then I, w- I would quickly, you know, um, touch the stove again and I'd be sidelined. And so that year before had been rebuilding the body uh, really from the ground up. And I was finally training hard again. Um, and that cross country season was, I had a tough season. I got a a really bad bronchial infection and just struggled through the middle part of the season, sort of hacking my lungs up and then came right in time for that regional championship. And I think I was physically right for nationals, just not mentally. Um, but I definitely, it was a big step forward for me. Um, and then that winter, I was, I was in a bad place. I was, I was sort of super depressed, um, with the sort of where, what things had been going on with my family and my brother and stuff. And then I, the kids I had hung out with in school were mostly gone and I was, um, in a grad program. So I didn't have like the same set of friends or anything. And so I was just, and I remember sort of thinking of it as, uh, that the counting crow song, a uh, uh, long December and I strung together just consistent. The workouts weren't super impressive, but there was a a decent workout every week and the miles were high and the the pace was really good and really consistent. And it didn't matter if it was snow and it didn't matter if there was an ice storm. It just, it was all getting done. Um, 
And there were only a couple of people. My schedule was so different. I couldn't practice with the team except for I had set it up so I could do the Tuesday night track workout with them. And that was it. Everything else, I was pretty much on my own. And every once in a while, I could sucker someone into like giving up their dinner um, for an evening. Like, I'll buy you a pizza. Don't go to practice and come for a run with me. Um, And I remember doing that one time with Pat. And after the run, he was like, yeah, I'm never doing that again. <laughs> and I was like, wow, that was, that was a great run. And he's like, first off, you, you told me we were doing 10 miles. And I'm like, that's a 10 mile loop. He's like, no, that was at least 11 miles. Um, and it was just like, he had all these, this list of complaints. It was too fast. It was too long. It was just, and I, it, but it really kind of, that's what I was doing. I was just that, just grinding and probably training harder than I realized. And, um, I ended up, yeah, I, I qualified for my first NCAAs on the track indoors. Um, and, that's a race I remember um, very vividly. Um, I actually ran well at nationals. I, again, didn't get all American, but I, I ran well. And um, outdoors, I basically got banged up the week of pen relays or two weeks before pen relays. And I just, I didn't miss any time, but I couldn't get up on my toes at all. So I couldn't run anything under a six minute mile. Um and so I sort of missed that, you know, outdoor track in New England, uh, particularly going to a division two school like you and I did, you got maybe one shot, maybe two to qualify for nationals. There wasn't a whole lot of money floating around. There wasn't a whole lot of travel. Um, and so Penn was my one chance. So I didn't run it. Um, and I remember being really disappointed about that. I really wanted to break 30 for a 10 count track. And then early June running the old whirl away 10 K as my first post collegiate race, um, it was a hot, hot day, uh, you know, rolling road course in New England. And I ran a little under 31 minutes. I ran right around the same time we had run at Franklin Park the previous fall, you know, 30, 50 something, maybe 30, 40 something. And one, it's a New England Grand Prix, which are a big deal if you're a New Englander and nobody else knows what it is. Uh, but it was, I won a New England Grand Prix and that was like a big deal. And I knew like, that's the best, some of the best running I've ever done. And it, it kind of really was of indication. And I, so I, I feel like that was, yeah, that was the launching point. That was when I, I finally got consistent, um, and really sort of started to, to build the foundation of what was going to come. I remember that race and I remember we did a little bit of training together around that time. I'd love to rewind just a little bit. At what point of your collegiate career did you know that you wanted to continue pursuing running at a competitive level once you were done with your studies uh junior high school <laughs> <laughs> i was all that i ever wanted surprise me in retrospect yeah it was, it was all it was the only thing i uh yeah i it was all i ever wanted and i was just constantly frustrated that i wasn't that good i was working harder than everybody i i had a contentious relationship with my indoor track coach in high school. And I remember having an argument with him. Um, at the time my PR was 10.02 and I just desperately wanted to break nine minutes, which was, I was nowhere near and telling him how I, 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 this was, you know, he's like, you're improving, stop complaining. And I, you know, basically, um, saying like 10.02 isn't improving, blah, blah, blah. And he said, stop whining. You'll be a, a great marathoner someday. Um, so yeah, so I always knew like, that's what I wanted. Um, and then instead of college, college was sort of the reality check. And so I had injuries and I saw what real good running was and I could see the difference between me and that level. Um, but I knew I was going to always run. I was just gonna, this is what I love to do. And it would be competitive running on some level, 
Um, but in that grad school year, I had come to the decision um, that I would not go and get a job immediately after finishing grad school, that I would keep the part-time job that I had um, and that I would basically keep the the lifestyle that I had and just try to qualify for the Olympic trials. At that time, marathon qualifier was a 222 for the B standard. And that was kind of what I thought. And even, you know, I think for people who aren't super competitive, they hear you and I talk about our glory days in college and think, oh my God, you were so good. You know, I mean, what you ran 409, 408 in the mile? Yeah. 4097. 4097 in the Which mile. Barely you, got me into nationals. And now yeah, barely get definitely would not get me into nationals. Yeah, no, you, you've got to be a golden god nowadays. Um, you know, I ran 1431, which again, I think I was 10th or 11th qualifier in a field of 12. Nowadays, like you said, wouldn't even have a, a shot. Um, but in terms of competing on a, a, a national level, in terms of even qualifying as one of the 150 people for the Olympic marathon trials guys like you and I are not actually that close to that. That's a huge goal from that point, because you think, you know, um, I think the regional qualifier, even when we were in school for division one, which is usually set at the hundredth fastest time from the previous year, you know, you're looking at a 5,000 of something around 1410, 1405. Um, so to talk about being in the top 150 marathoners in the country, you're really talking about, that was a, a huge step forward. But I honestly thought, I owe it to myself to take two good years to really focus on that. And I had thought about doing it around um, a full-time job. And um, I remember talking to Gary Gardner, who was coaching UML, and him basically saying, listen, you're you're poor now. You're used to being poor. You're used to living that way. If you go and get a job and realize you can't train hard enough to qualify for the trials, you're not going to be able to give up mm-hmm. the stuff that comes along with actually having enough money to to live a normal life. Um, but if you've never had it, you don't know what you're missing. Um, and just go out and, you know, and so I, I took his advice on that. And, but yeah, so that in terms of the actual decision of how I was going to approach it, I really didn't make that until probably right around that pen relays week out towards that senior year. But in terms of a, a mental decision or emotional decision that this is what I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, very, very early on. You were largely self-coached for most, if not all, of your post-collegiate career. You just described your relationship with your indoor track coach in high school. You had great coaches in college in George Davis and then Gary Gardner for most of it. And I know Gary has served as an advisor and a mentor to you since then. But would you consider yourself a tough athlete to coach? I consider myself a tough human being to be around in general. <laughs> I am, um, I, I, I try, I really, honestly, I don't think, I think people who've been close to me, um, would might dispute that, but I, I really am trying. Um, but no, I am, I'm difficult to deal with. I am very opinionated. I am very comfortable arguing. Uh, I'll have an argument with someone and I don't realize they're upset. I just think we're, you know, we're, we're voicing both sides of the opinion. Um, and the thing that was great is um, for my two college coaches um, handled me very, very differently. And it was perfect in both ways. Uh, George Davis would argue, he loved to argue and he would, he would get fired up. He was, I don't usually get fired up. He would scream, he would yell, he would shake. 
but he always was happy to have you back in the room to argue again five minutes later. He didn't care. He didn't take it personal. Um, And so we would argue and I would leave. You know, George would tell me when my time was up or whatever, and it would be time for practice. And then I would stew on what he would say, and I would come back in a day or two and say, you know what, George, you're right. Um, And I would do it his way. And then um, with Gary, Gary is very different. Um, Gary doesn't argue um, ever. Um, Gary plays this like long game and he plants seeds um, and then just kind of waits for that, for you to figure out like what he's been trying to tell you, but he won't, he's very indirect. Um, And at times that drove me nuts because uh, there were times when I wanted very direct advice and I would go to Gary and be like, here is the problem. I need to fix this problem. And he would not, he would just be like, well, what do you think you need to do? And it's like, you're, you're killing me, Gary. Um, but he would, yeah, he would definitely, um, he handled me in very different ways. I think I had a lot of ideas that I thought were my own and they were really Gary's and he just planted the seed three months before. Um, and then sometimes when something was, I remember when I was going to run my debut marathon, I had changed up my training the fall before and I had just broken through. So I had run a 107 half in October by February, three weeks before my marathon debut was scheduled, I ran a 103.44. So I've gone four minutes faster. And this was the only time Gary ever really pushed an issue with me. And when I got back, he said, I know we've been talking about trying to run 220 to 222. You need to try to run 216. And I was like, I don't think so, man. You know, that that I don't think I'm a 216 marathoner. And he said, well, you might not be. And that's fine. And you don't have to be a 216 marathoner, but you just ran 103. You need to at least go out at that pace. The trials are a long way off. If it if you blow up and you drop out, it's no big deal. You've got plenty of time to run it again. And I started to argue with him and he just changed the subject. But then like the next day, he'd be like, oh, I've been thinking about, you know, your marathon coming up. And I, you know, I just, I think a 108 first half would really be ideal, you know, and then I would argue with him, but every day and slowly it was like, I started saying like, well, maybe, yeah, I guess I could go out at that. And, um, he really talked me into it, but that was kind of, they'd worked very differently, but yeah, I'm a difficult human being to deal with just in general. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by my friends at Soar Running. Soar is a UK-based men's running apparel brand whose stuff I've been wearing and enjoying for the past couple years. They have the lightest race singlet I've ever worn and other great pieces like the hot weather t-shirt, all weather jacket, elite speed shorts, and more. One of the things I love about this brand is that all they do is running. Soar is committed to creating apparel that matches your commitment, whether you're striving for a sub four minute mile or a sub 10 minute mile. Right now, Soar is giving all listeners of the Morning Shakeout podcast, that's you, the chance to win a spring kit bundle comprised of your choice of any top, bottom, and accessory from Soar's range of products. All you have to do is head over to soarrunning.com slash the morning shakeout. That's S O A R running.com slash the morning shakeout and enter the prize draw. That's it. The winner will be selected at random and entries close at midnight on Sunday, May 3rd. Also, Soar is offering free global shipping to Morning Shakeout listeners throughout the month of April. When you check out at soarrunning.com, enter the code SHAKEOUT. That's one word, all caps, in the promotion box, and they won't charge you for shipping no matter where you live in the world. That is a great deal. 
Check them out at SoarRunning.com and follow them on Instagram at Soar underscore running. My thanks to Soar Running for sponsoring this episode of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. After college, when you made that breakthrough at the Whirl Away 10K, I remember this because I had gone on some runs with you. We'd done a workout or two together and a former UMass Lowell runner, Jason LaValle had this blog. It was called like jasonjoe.com. Doesn't exist anymore. I might go through the archives and try to find it, but you were posting your training there. And I remember, I think it was that summer, you were working at a camp of some sort where you Mm -hmm. were a counselor working with kids. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you were following a Lydiard style program almost to the T. And I remember looking at your training because you would post it to the blog every week. And it was like 10 miles in the morning at six minute pace and then 10 miles in the evening at eight minute pace in a full sweatsuit. And I think one day per week you would run that morning 10 miles in like 55 minutes and then there was a 20 miler on the weekend. So it was something like, you know, 140 miles a week if if not more. And that's all you did for a period. Then you went into the hill phase and you were doing hill springs and like, you know, all that kind of stuff. And that was sort of the start of your breakthrough. So I'd love to go there and understand the thought process behind how you were thinking about your training at that time and what you needed to do. And the last thing I'll add before you answer is you were doing all of this, if I'm remembering correctly from our runs, in Nike Freeze. You had bought a shitload of pairs of them because you had dealt with all these injuries in college. And for whatever reason, that shoe you could wear and not deal with any injury trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you pretty much got it. You hit the nail on the head. I had read everything, much like I think we had talked about this. Both of us had read pretty much anything that was available in print at the time um, about running that we could get our hands on. And the Lydiard story had stuck with me. Here's this guy. He's a milkman. He gets to coach like five guys and three of them end up as Olympic medalists. And to me, it just, then his success afterwards, it just, I decided that that's what I needed to do. And I did, I did a very religious following of his um, training based largely on the schedules in his book. Um, And I think you pretty much covered it exact. Um, there was, it was most days were the 10, 10 double with 10 of it being very, very easy and 10 of it being steady Tuesday, five miles kind of steady. And then the 10 mile tempo, which again, yeah, I was about five thirty pace at the time, which I was probably going a little too hard on that given my fitness at the time. And then, uh, Thursday would be a medium long run. So the, um, instead of the 10 mile or six minute pace, I would do closer to 18, and then on Sunday, no double, and I would do a 22, um, again, closer to the six-minute pace. Uh, and then I did the hill phase, and I got hurt. Um, downhill sprinting does not agree with my IT band. That was one of the exercises I was doing during the hill phase. And so I would, I didn't miss much time, maybe a week, maybe two, but I lost confidence, and I went back to the base. And I ended up doing that a couple of times. Um, and then finally, uh, in the fall of... 2017, trying to do, uh, I just sort of forced myself in through the full cycle 
And um, I think I hadn't raced enough and I made a couple of mistakes in the specific phase that I would do differently now. And I actually raced fairly well um, and got myself very fit. I ran 30-35 at Franklin Park, so 20 seconds faster than we had run a couple of years before. Um, And the two guys I finished between in that race a week or two later, both finished in the top 15 at U.S. Club Cross Country Nationals. So, um, and I had, at that point, when I was racing them at Franklin Park, that was in 140, 150 mile week. And I tapered for Club Nationals, but I um, did two things that were really stupid. I drove out the day before um, and we hit some traffic and we drove sort of slow. So I was like 12 hours in a car the day before. Um, And... I raced like an absolute idiot. So I think I ran my first kilometer for this cross country 10 K in two thirty six, And I just blew up across the red line too early, Crossed the red line way too early. Um, and just crawled into about 90th place. Um, and honestly was ready to quit. I was like, well, I did everything the way I was supposed to, and I didn't have any success. Um, but I was broke. Um, and Gary was planting these seeds of you need to run a marathon before you quit. Ah. Uh, but I went out and I ran a, a 10K, a six mile cross country race. Um, the Holyoke, Holyoke one? Yeah. Holyoke I remember one. that race. And uh, you it's, slayed perfectly, it. it's perfectly flat, but it snowed. Um, and so there was like a, an inch of like snow and ice because it's not on the road. It's on a um, like a cinder trail, cinder path. I don't want to call it a trail. It's like a dirt road. It's perfectly flat. It's awesome. Um, and I wore spikes and I ran, I PR'd for four miles, five miles, uh, and ran 29 flat for six miles. And it was like, no, you're fit. You just screwed up in that race, you know? Um, and so that sort of woke me up that it had worked, but I also knew that, um, Lydiard had not had the same success in the marathon that he had had on the track that his athletes, if you looked at their track times, particularly when you consider that those times were run on cinders um, without pace setters, their track times compared much more favorably with world-class 5,000 and 10,000, 1,500, 800 running than they did with the marathon, where I think the fastest guy he coached maybe ran 216, 217. When did you start seriously thinking about the marathon? Was it after that Holyoke cross-country race? or In terms of specifically doing a marathon, yeah. That was when... Um, it was Gary had kind of after actually after the poor run at club nationals, um, when I was down, Gary had said, they've opened the trials qualifying window. It's time. Even if you don't think you're ready, it's time to find a winter marathon that's competitive and take a shot. Um, in terms of just generally speaking, I always knew longer was better for me, but yeah, so that was, yeah, that at that point I started searching for another marathon program. Um, Bob Hodge, who coached you for a little while, has a website. Um, what is it? Uh, Hodgesan on Bun Hill or something like that. It's changed, but yeah, if you put Bob Hodge yeah. into Google, it'll come up still. Yeah, you'll find it. Uh, on that, there was a training schedule for Rogers Rop, who um, had one. It was one of the schedules for one of his Boston wins. There was a Canova schedule. And I adjusted that to my fitness um, and attempted to do that for my debut marathon. That was my introduction to Canova. And that was what led me to that, I, like a huge physical breakthrough in that cycle. When you were doing that training cycle, what were some of the biggest changes from Lydiard to that, that you started noticing an immediate 
response in terms of how you were handling the load and what the output was showing you? The aerobic quality. So in the Lydiard, you're you're basically doing the vast majority of your work in the, the base phase when you're doing your aerobic development. The vast, vast majority of your work is at the high end of what I would call moderate pace. Um, and Canova would then say that you need to be running something um, maybe 20 seconds a mile, 10 seconds a mile faster than that. And you need to be doing some work around what your marathon goal pace is. And you need to be doing some lactate threshold work. And so, um, and there's some other aspects of Canova that were different, but for that point in my career, it was starting to do some runs at those paces. It was what my body needed at the moment. And so immediately I made huge jumps in fitness. Um, and so I would do these workouts and they were, I was not physically prepared for them. I hadn't done the prerequisite Canova base work to be ready for them. So I would do a workout. It would go great. Um, and then I'd have another workout scheduled like three days later and I wouldn't even try it. I was still too tired. And then I'd have another workout that was scheduled six days after that one that went well. And I would try it and I'd stop a third of the way in. And then finally, after 10, 15 days, I'd be able to do another workout and it would go well. And this was sort of how the whole cycle went. But it was doing that aerobic work that I had previously only touched on with those Tuesday 10 milers. Um, and that all of a sudden I very quickly went from being able to run six minute pace for an extended period of time, feeling good to then it was 540 pace for an extended period of time, feeling very good. And then it was 520 pace for an extended period of time, feeling very, very good. Um, and then it was, oh man, I did a set of intervals where the, I did like, you know, three mile repeats at five. 10, 5.15 pace, but I was running the recoveries under 5.30 pace. So my overall average was pretty quick. 5.15, 5.10 a mile for 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 miles, that sort of thing. And so, um, yeah, that was the big thing that, that made a change for me. There were just certain training zones that Lydiard did not specifically hit. And I think if you talk to someone who ran for Lydiard, they would tell you, well, we hit those paces but they did it more organically because they were training in a group and someone would get excited and push it this day or that day, or Lydiard would kind of look at how they were doing and say, you know what, today I want you to finish fast, you know, uh, stuff like that. Um, but in terms of just trying to do it from a book, from the dry pages uh, of a book, I, I wasn't getting those. At this point of your career, it was one of the longest stretches that you had had where you were actually healthy and able to put in consistent training week after week, month after month. Aside from changing the X's and O's of the actual training that you were doing, what was it that you think kept you healthy during that time? Were you doing any ancillary stuff? Was it the fact that you had full control over your program and you could push when you wanted to push and back off when you wanted to back off? I'd love to dig into that a little bit. I never thought about the full control thing. I don't think so. I, if that helped, it would have been more that if a coach, because my, again, Gary and George were great coaches. My high school coach was really good in terms of the common sense, stuff like that. The only problem would be that if they told me to back off, I might react um, in a, even though I know they are right, sort of a knee jerk reaction and push harder. Um, 
because, you know, nobody tells Jenkins to back off. I don't know. Like I said, I'm difficult to deal with. Um, I think that the bigger difference was I had ramped things up too quickly going into college and caused a lot of my own injuries. And, but my reaction to every injury is that's a weakness. Okay. You, I, there's a reason that that particular part of your body hurts. And then I would just strengthen the heck out of that area until the problem resolved. And so, yeah, I did a lot of ancillary work along the way. Now there was something as I weren't, I wasn't doing that I wish I had been that would have prevented my future problems. But in terms of how I dealt with, if I had a problem, I just strengthened the heck out of that area. And then when I was better, I didn't stop strengthening the heck out of that area. I kept doing that stuff so it didn't return. And so my weak spots really became uh, strong points. Um, Also, I think the Lydiard long, easy running, once I started to survive it, once I got to the point where I could do that with some consistency, it then becomes a self-feeding circle where you really do build rather than break down. And so I was really making myself much, much stronger through a lot of easy running on modulated surfaces. You know, and easy being a relative term. Some of that running was extremely easy, you know, eight to 10 minute mile pace, but some of it was six minute mile pace, which isn't, you know, it's not walking, but um, it's still compared to hard intervals or, or hard tempo runs. It's still pretty easy. Have you always had a bit of an obsessive compulsive personality? Yeah, no way around that, yeah. All the way back to middle school, high school days? Yes. Where do you think that comes from? I don't know. Um, I just always did, and I... Yeah, I don't know. Um, That's a really good question, but I have no idea. I don't know. It could be a chip on my shoulder, um, just kind of... Um, it could just be that central mass, blue collar, hardworking thing. Um, both my parents were extremely hardworking. It's probably only thing I can think of that they really had in common. Um, other than that, but yeah, I don't know. Do you have a chip on your shoulder? I did. I did for a long time. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I, I think that I've exercised a lot of those demons. I think that my running career and particularly the hard training, um, was a way of kind of toning myself down. Mm -hmm. If you exhaust yourself enough, um, you lose a lot of those knee-jerk reactions and stuff. Um, and even now, uh, my wife, who puts up with me better than anybody in my life ever has, God bless her. Um, if I'm not running, I get on her nerves pretty quick. Um, so she pushes you out the door? Of, yeah, or like usually what it is is I've been injured. Um, so I've had uh, a couple of stress fractures. In the, We've been together 10 years. So over the, that time... Hmm, I'm saying 10, I guess it's 11 or 12 now. Um, so, uh, I've had a couple of stress fractures in that time. So it was where I, when I was running, uh, when we knew each other, I would have trained through a stress fracture. Um, but now I try to be a little smarter than that. Um, and then I, uh, I've had two surgeries that, uh, required some time, some downtime. Um, but yeah, I definitely start to get on her nerves. Um, if I don't have that outlet, um, I'm interested in this uh, quarantine period if not being able to race for an extended period will have the same effect because I feel like I get more of that aggressiveness and uh, over-competitiveness out uh, in racing. But um, we'll see. Well, knowing you as I do, I've always considered you, yes, a, a hard worker, someone who's put in tremendous amounts of volume 
and training to achieve the results that you have. But I've always considered you a racer, even from high school. I remember when you were in Narragansett, before I ever even said a word to you, I remember seeing you at races and thinking like, Jesus Christ, I hope I don't end up in Jenkins heat because he's just going to give it to me. Uh, And I felt the same way in college and even post-collegiately when you were on the starting line with me, I just knew you were going to make me and everyone else in that race work for it. And you could just see that in your personality, like something flipped when that gun went off and when that gun still goes off and you just turn into a a different person. And I mean that as a full compliment. And I take it as I actually was just going to say, I thank you so much. I I can't tell you what it means for you to, uh, to hear that from you because you're someone I respect. I, yeah, no, I would say that is absolutely fair. Um, Gary and I have one argument, one thing that we never agree on. Um, Gary loves workouts in races, um, because you can go into a race with that extra adrenaline and then that workout feels so much easier, you know? So he would tell kids, you know what, uh, this week for this cross country, AK, you're just going to do it as a workout. So I know you can run 25, 30, you're going to run 27 flat, um, and no faster. And I refuse to do that. I, believe in like racing as this, when you race, it should be a maximal effort. That doesn't mean it has to be a time trial from the start or, you know, the prefontaine, you know, like go from the gun thing. I have no problem with the Steve Ovette sitting kickers, or I just didn't have the speed to make that particular work for me. I don't care if it, every race is a PR. I just want when, when it's over, it should have been a maximum effort. Now that could be because you ran a crazy last kilometer, but it should be a maximum effort, you know? Um, and yeah, so I think, I think that is, is, is very, very true. Um, it's definitely how I approach racing and, um, sort of my mentality is that is a, that is a testing time. Um, and that it it should be, it should be a war. Um, and I do get very over competitive. Um, and it doesn't matter if I'm really in shape or running well or not. Um, on a lark, I did a, uh, club cross country championship a couple of years ago and I was not in good shape at all. I was basically, I think I had a a crackpot dream that I could sneak into the top hundred, but that was definitely unlikely. And, uh, I got into a shoving match with a guy, um, mid race and like, I'm, I'm fairly laid back, uh, with particularly strangers in the, uh, regular world. Um, and I should have been disqualified. I definitely spiked him onto the, the, the ground. Um, and, uh, it's okay. We, we've talked since I own some beers. Um, but, uh, I just, I am, I'm very, I get very fired up in racing and it, it, I do, I want to beat people. I want to make people hurt. I want to make myself hurt. Is that competitiveness tied to the chip on your shoulder that you just talked about a little while ago? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. When did you realize that? <laughs> junior high school. When I first started, I went to a junior, senior high. We were allowed to practice with the varsity in junior high school. And I realized right away that the thing I could control was I could I could push harder and harder and harder. And, and you, you automatically got a return on that. Um and that was sort of the, the, the mentality of the people I was around, both the coaches and the kids had sort of the same thing. And, uh, so it was, it was definitely encouraged, um, and rewarded. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I kind of knew it right from the start, um, that that was an area where 
I could excel, that I could, for whatever reason, my body would, wouldn't shut down quite the same way other people's would. And that I wasn't, it doesn't bother me. I think a lot of people, when you get into a lot of pain, um, I described it as they take it personally, um, or it freaks them out. They worry about it. It doesn't bother me in the least. I, I just, it's just something that's there. It doesn't matter. It, it, It doesn't, it's not scary. There's no fear of, I think a lot of times you hear someone say, well, I wasn't hurting that bad, but I was so far from the finish. I, I got, I started to get nervous about, could I hold this to the finish? That's not a thought I generally have. You said a minute ago how your body wouldn't give out quite the same way that other people's would. But to me, that's your mind is on a different level than other people's. And I think from having raced with you and observed your entire career, I think that to me is the greatest skill that you bring to the table as an athlete isn't the work that you put in. Sure, that makes a big difference. It's that mindset that you can take more than the people around you or you're willing to take more than the people around you. Yeah, I I don't know where you might be right. It might be more mental. Um, I also, I just, I don't feel like, I just have a sneaking suspicion. I don't experience pain in the same way that most people do. And I have nothing to, to base that on, but, um, you know, uh, I had a hip surgery a couple of years ago. Um, and I don't, I don't take the, I don't like pain meds. Uh, I have, there's a lot of addiction in my family, so I just didn't take them. And I was actually, I can admit, I was nervous about that decision. I was like, oh, geez, you know, like I might, this might be really miserable for a few weeks. And um, I was shocked that it really wasn't bad. Um, it did not, it did not bother me. Um, and I've had a, a few things along the way like that. Um, so I don't know. Um, but yeah, it definitely could be maybe a, 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 a mental difference. I don't know. Let's get back to the trajectory of your competitive career. We haven't talked about your first marathon specifically, but I'll ruin it for everyone. You went to Austin, I believe it was, ran 215 and change. I remember the Molten Boys also went there with you and ran around the same time. And the internet isn't what it is now, but people, at least in New England, were going crazy. They're like, Jenkins and the Molten, they just ran like, you know, 215. Here's, you know, a guy who was not an All-American in college. And all of a sudden he's near, you know, someone near the top of, you know, the American marathon lists, like in his, in his debut. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of chatter. I'd love to understand how you thought about that race, knowing that going into it, you were like, okay, you know, I'd like to get the standard 222. Gary says I can run 216. When that gun went off, what were you thinking? Were you thinking I, I'm going to do what Gary said and try and run 216 and it ended up that you went a little bit quicker or were you just caught up in it? I don't know. Just let me, let me get into your headspace a little bit during that time. Um, I had made the decision to go for 216. Um, I had talked with the Moulton brothers, um, who were both coming off of good half marathons as well. Um, they were targeting about the same. Um, my idea of running 216 was to go out in 108. Theirs was that you pack a little time away and they had found a couple other people who were wanting to go out in about 107.30. Um, so we had a little group planned. 
Um, the race was postponed at the start. There was an ice storm the night before. Um, I was actually sitting on a bus uh, that was heading to the starting line um, when the race was supposed to start. And people were just like absolutely freaking out. Um, and I was like, literally like, we're in a row of buses going to the start. And I'm like talking to the people around me, like, stop freaking out. They're not going to start the race. We're in a row of buses to the starting line. Nobody starts their race with nobody there. You know, they're, they'll, they know what's going on. The buses have radios. It's okay. Um, so when we started, it was, it was cold and all of us were under warmed up because we did sort of get off the buses and start the race. And, um, I mean, we had a little bit of time to go to the bathroom and stuff, but it was tight. Um, so I think the first mile was slow. Um, 5.20, something like that. And then our group sort of found each other. Um, I had a friend who was running the half marathon uh, strictly to pace us because the half marathon literally shared the same starting line and the same course for 13 miles. So we got to the 13 mile mark and the half marathoners took a left into a parking lot and sprinted to the finish. Um, and so there were a couple of other people in our little group who had also brought friends. So we had this nice big group, um, and there was still some ice and they had done this very Texas job of sanding the roads, um, which means that some guy had shoveled sand off the back of the truck. Um, and it was so thick in the center of the road that we were all avoiding it because it was like running in sand. And then, uh, the problem was we found out at the first bridge crossing that the bridges were still sheer ice. And so my friend, uh, this guy, Sammy, uh, would sprint out each time we got to the bridge and like, you'd see him like flail out and his arms go everywhere. Um, and he'd be like, this one's icy, get on the sand, you know? <laughs> and then, so this was sort of our routine. Um, so we went through half at about 107, 30, it was 107.20 something. Um, and at that point, um, I was, it was basically just the Moulton brothers. Um, a couple other guys had gone off a little in front of us. Uh, a couple of others had finished with the half marathoners and um, a couple others had just faded in the, the previous couple of miles. And um, Casey says, how are you guys doing? And Pat says, I feel great, but I have a horrible side stitch. And I was actually feeling the exact same way. And um, Casey goes, you two are idiots. Stop drinking water and the side stitches will go away. It's 30 degrees out. And it was true that Pat and I had been taking every water bottle that we had out on the course and um, Casey wasn't. And he was the only one of us who had done a marathon. I think Pat had dropped out of one. And so sure enough, within a mile, the stitch goes away and I just felt great. And I left those guys behind and just sort of got faster and faster. Um, culminating, I ran the 20th mile in 457. Um, and I hit 20 miles at 142.22. And um, then you turned into the Capitol building in Austin. It was kind of a, an uphill there and then some rollers through the, the parking lots around the Capitol. And uh, I ran 508 and 508. And it was the two hardest miles I'd ever run in my life. And I just thought, this is what a marathon's like. I'm just going to grind these 508s to the finish line. And uh, then I ran out of glycogen um, and just crawled in crawled in. And, um, so I think I ran, maybe I slowed to like a 520 and the Moulton brothers caught me. Um, and then maybe another, like a 528 or something like that. And then there was an uphill mile on a raised highway with nobody around. And we ran like a 540 something. I remember just laughing at that split. It was just so like crazy that a couple of miles ago, I'm running under five minutes. And now the same effort is getting me a 540, but also knowing I, 
I couldn't, I can't do math in the last 10K of a, a marathon, but I knew we packed away time. Um, and so, because again, a 221.59 and I'm thrilled. So, um, and I think I had done the math at, you know, it wasn't hard math at 20 miles to say, okay, if you're anything under 36 minutes for the last 10K, you're good. You're good, which isn't all that far off six minute pace. So I was kind of like, all right, I'm fine. So, yeah, so we ended up shuffling in. I think Casey beat me in the home stretch by uh, five or six seconds, and I beat Pat by four or five seconds. Um, and yeah, we ran 215. It was just, it was awesome. Um, but for me, it, it really took a while to settle in. Uh, I, part of me said it was a fluke, the course must have been wrong. Um, or I had a lucky day. Um, and there were two things that did it for me. Uh, a few months later, I roomed with John Brown at a race who was the, uh, two time Olympic fourth place finisher in the marathon in 2000 and 2004. And, um, he had a rental car. I didn't, and we, there were some trails near the race that he wanted to run on. So every day I would go and run these trails with him and, um, Kathy Butler, who was a Scottish woman who, uh, emigrated to Canada and, and became an Olympian for them. And, uh, they were really good friends, but, on one of these runs, John didn't talk much, um, but he had asked basically like, who the heck are you? What have you done? Um, and I started telling him I'd run this 215 marathon, but I was almost like making all these excuses about how it was perfect conditions and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And uh, he said, listen, you've run 215. There are things that could make that not a good representation because you are actually much faster than that but there's nothing in the world that makes you slower than that. And that really sunk in for me, that idea that, okay, yeah, like you might run 215 in horrible conditions and really be a 212 guy or a 211 guy. But if you ran 215, there's no way you're worse than that. Um, and then in the fall, I met Renato Canova and I thanked him um, for putting his stuff up online and, kind of told him what I had run. And I mentioned the 103 half I had run um, and a, an 8K I'd run shortly after the marathon in 2320. And he basically said, you ran out of glycogen at 22 miles, didn't you? And I'm like, yes. And he's like, you didn't follow my base phase, did you? Like, no. Um, and then he said, you know, if you'd followed my base phase, you would have been able to do more workouts during your specific phase. At this point, I hadn't told him that I hadn't been able to do all the workouts in the specific phase. Just like He's you like, described then, earlier where you needed more time to recover right. from them. Mm -hmm. And so he said, you should have run 213.45. And for me, that like was like, wow, this is this guy that I absolutely idolize saying this and this is his system. Um, and so those two moments really are when I accepted that the, the 215 was a reality. Um, and at that point, uh, that really sort of changed my mentality. Because if I could do that in my debut, if I could do that after just changing my training system, what was possible now? Now that I was in that kind of shape, 213 to 215 shape, what could I train to do? Um, and so that's when I became really serious about taking a crack at making the Olympic team um, in 08. Is it fair to say that that's when you took yourself seriously as an athlete and finally had the confidence to move forward knowing that you could compete at that level and on the right day finish high up in a competitive marathon? Yeah, I think so. I, I, I had that confidence as a kid. You know, Central Mass was pretty sheltered. Um, and so I, I kind of thought I could run with anybody in my slow times or just because of a lack of opportunity. 
Um, and I think it was a bit of a false confidence, but then I, I definitely had that beaten out of me through failure. Um, and I think that, yeah, I think that that, those two conversations are when I sort of decided, you know, and also in between I had run some decent races. So I had run a, a 23 20s, 8k on the roads. Um, and I'd beaten some guys there that I had some respect for, um, in that four miler, um, where I roomed with John Brown, he was just coming back. Uh, from an illness, but I ended up beating him uh, narrowly over four miles. And I, I beat some other uh, very, very good runners having very bad days. But I was sort of realizing like, that's where you're at right now. You can go up against the best in the world when they're not a hundred percent. And um, that definitely was, a, yeah, that's, that's when that mentality shift sort of really happened for me. Let's fast forward to fall of 2007. It's the Olympic trials, Central Park. You are a sponsored athlete by this time. You've got a contract with Saucony. You've had some good race results. You had a solid marathon debut, even though you ran out of gas the last four miles. What did you tweak between that marathon in Austin and the Olympic trials where spoiler again, you finished seventh in two fourteen fifty six, if I'm not mistaken. That sounds right. I, the only thing I tweaked is I did what Canova said. I, I switched to his base phase. So I got rid of the Lydiard base phase and I did the Canova base phase. I followed the exact same training schedule um, as I had for the debut, but now I was able to do every workout. I had a couple of small hiccups along the way. Um, I had hurt my, um, Achilles in the Falmouth road race and dropped out. Um, and I thought I may have torn it. It was just a wicked spasm. I was hobbled. Um, and I, I got lucky. I hadn't, the chiropractor I was seeing at the time did, uh, um, active release therapy. Um, and I was back running within five or six days, um, and ended up being a non-issue, but it was very stressful in the moment. And that changed. It necessitated a couple of changes to the schedule after that as I was kind of building back up into it. Then um, I got food poisoning in September. And that uh, necessitated a couple of small changes um, to the schedule. But other than that, I hit everything. I mean, just hit everything. Um, At that time, I was actually engaged um, to someone who is not my wife now. And um, in... Oh, geez, I don't remember, but somewhere in September, October, uh, in the, the final month or five weeks or so before the race, um, she broke things off. Um, and it was funny, uh, Gary at the time was like ready to kill her. Like, you know, you guys have been together for a, a good long while. She can suck, suck it up for a month and dump you the day after the trials. Like, come on, don't, don't get in the guy's head, you know? Um, <laughs> but, uh, it's funny because I was in such a place running wise that it, it had no impact on my running. Uh, I no impact on the workouts, no impact on the race itself. I just, I was in a different place. Um, mentally I was just totally prepared. So I think that was the other big shift. You know, we talked about in college, um, sort of my life being a disaster had affected my race at nationals and I underperformed. I felt like I should have been up at least with you, you know, um, you seemed like you were really in the right place mentally. So maybe I was wrong and you got 28th. I shouldn't have been 25th. Maybe I should have been 30th, but you know, I felt like I should have been that plus or minus five seconds with you. Um, and now going into the trials, I was in a place where everything on the outside didn't matter. It was, I was there, um, mentally, 
and, and just wholeheartedly in the moment of the thing. So what changed? Interestingly, though, what changed? I think it was just, I, I think, learning to to do that. That that to me was a learned skill, that ability to kind of put it in the zone. Um, if you've ever seen the, the movie with Kevin Costner for the love of the game where he's a pitcher throwing a perfect game, he does this really corny thing before each pitch where he says, clear the mechanism and the whole world kind of goes fuzzy around him. Um, and he doesn't hear the shouting from the stands and all that. And he zones in. Um, I didn't have a, a mantra or anything like that, but um, definitely when I race, that's what happens. Everything else goes away from a few moments before the race until I cross the line. There is nothing else. I don't think about life. I don't think about work or, or stresses or this or that. It's just being entirely in that process. Um, and so I think I had kind of developed that skill. Interestingly, at that point, my career was over. I had already um, suffered the injury that was going to end it. Um, I was already struggling with it. It wasn't as bad as it would get. But um, so it was very interesting. I thought I was on the the, the, the ride up um, and it was this breakout. And it was when um, people found out who I was. Um, but in reality, the um, the blow that was going to end it had already been struck. So it's just, it's very interesting to look at that in retrospect for myself. If I can interrupt here, I remember this. I don't know what the specific issue was, but I remember in your blog entries, it was like my my hamstring basically just shut off. And mm-hmm. I remember in your recap of the race, it actually happened during the trials itself where something stopped firing and you literally would have to stop on the side of the road. I don't know if you massaged it or stretched it or whatever you did, uh, and then you could get going again. And clearly wasn't problematic enough that it caused a complete disaster at the trials because you finished seventh, but... Before we go, you know, further on to that, leading into the trials race, what was your mentality? I mean, you knew you had this issue and it could potentially be problematic during the race, but you also knew that you were very fit. You had put in a great training cycle. You were able to hit almost all your workouts despite a couple small hiccups. For you, what were your expectations heading into the Olympic trials fall of 2007? It was a spectacular field. You had um, Ryan Hall had run a 208 debut. Um you had Dathan Rissenheim, who I wasn't too worried about because he had struggled in his debut, and I thought he would not run as well. But I was very scared of Alan Culpepper. Meb Kofleski was the reigning silver medalist. Um, Dan Brown had run a number of 211s, including some in tough conditions, uh, and was back. Khalid Kanuchi was back to some degree, and no one knew exactly how fit he was. Um, and then you had this, you know, Brian Sell had run a couple of two tens, um, including one at Boston. And then you had these, this strong second tier of guys like Peter Gilmore. Um, and I, I knew that, but I knew the workouts I was doing. I had gotten the opportunity, thanks to the New York Roadrunners, to see the course up close and personal the previous year. I knew exactly what we were facing. And I felt that a 212 would make the Olympic team. And I thought that if I didn't lose coordination, that was possible, that I could possibly run a 212. Can you describe the issue uh, that you were dealing with when yeah, you say of coordination? Course. I, I didn't know at the time. Um, I didn't actually know this until quite recently. I had torn uh, my glute med partially off the bone. Because it was in the white tendon area, the tear wouldn't heal. Um, and so what would happen is that muscle would reach a fatigue point and basically the muscles around it would overwork and then eventually shut down. 
Um, over the years, I would tear it a little more and a little more. I would, I would get stronger in that area. I would see some improvement. And then suddenly I would take a big step back. And I, I didn't know what was going on. I thought it was neurological. I thought I had MS. Like I didn't know what the heck was going on. Um, but I would lose the ability to effectively push off of or um, drive through with that leg. Uh, it's There are many things that can cause these symptoms. It's referred to as a runner's dystonia. Um, but that that's what I was dealing with. Um, but at this point, um, through my training, it bothered me not in all the workouts. So in some, it, it, it caused problems. In others, I got through with no issue or I would have a little issue right at the end. Sometimes when I would stop and stretch when it happened, I would get another three to six miles before the problem would reassert itself. Sometimes I would get no relief at all. So the moment I started running again, it was still, I had no control of the leg. But I had done, I knew from my workouts on the on a perfectly flat course, I could run right around 211 flat, 210 high. Um, and I, I thought based on looking at the course that I could run 212 something there. And that that might be enough to make the team, particularly... Um, there was Meb Kofleski had dropped out of a half marathon with a tight calf. I knew he historically had calf issues. Um, Ryan Hall had only run the debut and it had been on the very fast London course. And I thought there was a good chance that he would be too aggressive. Um, and that the course would eat him up. I was so right about that. Oh my God. Um, and Ritz was gonna fall apart because, Salazar had never coached a successful marathoner. Yep, another thing I was super right about. Um, and so anyway, um, that was sort of where I was at mentally. Um, and that was how I approached it. Um, and for 19 miles, that's how the race went. I The pace started super slow. I stayed in the lead pack. Uh, Abdi made a huge move in the 10th mile. Um, I ran a 447 and got dropped. I think they ran 434, 435 up front. But like Alan Culpepper was in my pack. Brian Sell was in my pack. I, I knew that most of those people who had gone would come back. You felt good about the company that you kept. I at felt that good point. about the company I was in. Um, I went through a period with a side stitch, um, which I think was more from just being uh, not paying attention and not relaxing enough. Um, running in the, the pack and the trials is. Uh, stressful. There's, there's just a huge number of people around you. Uh, there were a ton of motorcycle cops, ton of bicycles. Um, I got hit by one of the cameramen at one point. Um, it's just, it's a very, it's, a, it's, there's a lot of distraction. Um, when I sort of got over that stitch, Culpepper dropped out right next to me. And that really got me thinking like, and I started to look around and realize the pack I'm in isn't that big anymore. And so uh, we're kind of moving along and other people started to drop out of that pack. And eventually it was uh, one of the Downen brothers, um, Peter Gilmore and um, Josh Rohatinsky, who is a sub 28 minute 10K runner and NCAA champ. And then um, I broke away from each of those guys either fell off or I, and then I broke, I think down in uh, first Gilmore, then down and fell off. Um, both of them were fighting injuries. And then um, I broke away from Rohatinsky and we were picking off people from the lead pack. At this point, Brian Sal and Khalid Kanucci had surged away from our pack earlier and were moving up. Um, and so I'm sort of moving up through the field. This is this is the plan. Everything's going to plan. And uh, approaching the 19-mile mark, I lost coordination, and I decided there was a water stop at 19 miles. I would run past the tables. I would stop and stretch until Rotinsky caught me, and then I would try to restart running, hopefully having full coordination, 
lose 10 seconds, no big deal. Um, but the moment I started running again, the coordination problem was still, I still had no control. So I just locked onto Josh's back um, and just was limping as hard as I could, just limping as hard as I could. And um, he wasn't running that great. Like I had been running away from him running 505s, you know, 502s. I wasn't flying on the rollers. And so he was running 513s, 515s. And then um, 22 miles, he fa- he fell apart. He ran out of glycogen and I sort of limped by him. Um, and I just sort of, you know, hobbled in. I, I think I ran 33 flat or 32 50 something for the last 10 K. So just under 520 pace. Um, but yeah, so, uh, my mentality at that point changed and it was, I didn't want to be that guy who went out like an idiot at the trials and everybody beat. And so I just said, I'm going to limp as hard as I can to that finish. And everybody who catches me is going to have to bleed to do it. Um, and as it was, you know, the course was tough enough that nobody caught me. Now that said, I honestly think in retrospect, the coordination cost me 90 seconds, no more. Um, and if I had gone 90 seconds faster on the day, um, I would have finished over under right around where Dan Brown was. So I think an absolute best case scenario is I could have maybe nipped Dan Brown at the line for one more spot. Um, and he's a tough competitor and he, I got by Meb in the stretch, but Meb was very hurt. Dan was not hurt. I have a feeling I would not, the time could have been a little faster, but I think seventh place was what I was getting on the day. Hey, one more quick break to let you know that this episode is also brought to you by The Feed. The Feed is a one-stop shop for athletes to fuel their training, stay healthy, and recover quicker. Their online store offers a selection of over 200 different sports nutrition products, supplements, and recovery devices. They have everything you need for hydration, fuel, recovery, and wellness. With brands like Morton, Goo, Honey Stinger, Human, Vital Proteins, Theragun, PowerDot, and many others, you can take your training to the next level. The Feed's wide selection of wellness products will help boost your immunity, keep you healthy, and improve your recovery time. They've even put together an Immunity Plus pack to help individuals boost their immunity during these uncertain times. Whether you are looking to stock up on healthy snacks or improve your training or recovery, visit thefeed.com slash morningshakeout to save 12% off your next order with The Feed. That's thefeed.com slash morningshakeout. My thanks to The Feed for sponsoring this episode of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. That mentality that you described once you got away from Rowatinsky, very Steve Prefontaine-esque of you. Thanks. I don't know. I just, it, yeah, I, I, I think that sometimes though, like you, you just want to, you know, if, you, if you're going to, if you're going to take a beating, you want them to know you were there. But that's what's amazing is so many people in that same situation, especially when they're dealing with a physical problem that is not allowing them to run properly or how they ordinarily would would have just folded even at the Olympic trials. I, I would say nine out of ten people in that same situation would have packed it in and called it a day and said, "Well, it, it's not worth it." But somehow you found it within you. And, and again, this is what I was saying earlier about about your mind to still quote unquote hobble through a last thirty three minute ten k at the trials to place you in seventh. Yeah, I mean that was definitely a mental battle, um, and. I'm not going to claim that I'm always like that. I've dropped out of races. I've quit. Um, but like I said, that particular cycle, I had put myself in the place. And I think you more than many people can really understand this because you came from very much the same place. You got a little talent. You're a good, hardworking guy. 
but you were not a superstar. You didn't go to Foot Lockers. You, you, you didn't set records and, and all that. You're a Division II athlete. Coming from that place and finding yourself, and it's not like you woke up one day, but basically you wake up one day and you've turned this corner and you are capable of beating the people you read about. You are capable of taking whatever they got and still being there. Now, they may, they may get the best of you, but you can take it. You can stand toe-to-toe with them. Is an awesome thing. It's just an awesome thing and a huge motivator, and it's a huge gift. And when you get it a little later in life, you can't help but know it's a gift. Versus if, if you or I were a footlocker champion in high school, you expect that. You think that's who I am, and you don't necessarily have – some people do, but I know I wouldn't have had the same appreciation for it. Versus I knew how lucky I was and I was not going to give that up. And that that builds this mentality that, you know, I'm going to give absolutely every last ounce for this. Um, and I, you know, it's funny. I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm whining about, you know, how I, I lost this coordination and this is the end of my career and all this. But I had, I was afforded some amazing, amazing experiences. Um, and I, yeah, I, I consider myself honestly like one of the absolute luckiest human beings on the planet um, for that gift, for, for what running gave me and the opportunities and the people I got to beat and the people I got to almost beat and the people I got to, to go to war with. Um, yeah, so, but yeah, I think that that being very thankful for it is, is a huge part of it. Um, Pete Rose um, was a crazy ball player. And I think we've talked about him before um, and banned and everything else. But there's this story that at the game six of the world series, Reds versus the Red Sox, um, that is they're going into extra innings. Pete Rose comes up to bat and he's talking to Carlton Fisk, the catcher for the Red Sox. And Carlton Fisk is tired. He's caught every game of the playoffs. He's beat up. He's had enough. And he said, he's just trying to get this game over with. And um, he said, Pete Rose is having this incredibly long at bat. He just keeps fouling off pitches as only Pete Rose could, you know, he's waiting for the pitch he wants. And so he's he's like literally purposely fouling these off. And between each pitch, he's going Fisky, this is amazing. Can you believe it? We're in the world series. This is like the biggest thing on the, on the planet. Everybody's watching. Like when you were a little kid, this is what you wanted. And he said, at first he's just getting pissed off at him. And by the end of the at bat, he's as fired up as Rose. He's like, Oh my God, this is true. This is everything I ever wanted. And it's really happening right now. And then he takes that motivation and he hits a game-winning home run in the next half inning. I was in the Pete Rose position. I honestly was, I'm hobbling in. And with each mile that went by, I'm like, I'm still in the top 10. That's Uda Pippig who's cheering on the side of the road over there. You know, like I just passed a hobbled Abdi Abdurrahman. He's a 208 marathoner, you know, and I'm, that guy up in front of me is Meb Kaflesky. And I remember catching Meb with 800 meters to go and Meb went right back by me. And I had a moment of like, oh, the dream was too much, you know? And then I said, no, like you're going to hobble back by him because this is the home stretch of the Olympic trials and he's the reigning Olympic silver medalist. And that's the sort of thing you pray for when you're a kid, like to go back and forth with the Olympic silver medalist in the home stretch of the Olympic trials. What more could you want? Um, And so I think that was a big part of it is just that perspective. I really appreciate that. Do you remember maybe a week or two before 
the Olympic trials, there was an interview with you. I believe it was for New York Roadrunner website or one of those. And you said something along the lines of, look, if I come in to that final straightaway and it's down to me and Meb Kofleski, I'm not going to be thinking about the fact that it's Meb Kofleski. I'm just going to try and go by him. And then that's exactly what happened. It wasn't for an Olympic team spot. It was for seventh and eighth place. But it's crazy. I remember like during that time, I remember Nate said this in an interview last week that if he had to come through the final straightaway and Meb Kofleski was there, he was just going to go by him. And lo and behold, that's exactly what ended up happening. How crazy is that? It is super crazy. Um, and I've said a lot of really stupid stuff in my lifetime. And that was probably high on the list of yet another stupid thing I said. I don't remember doing the interview. I don't know what point I did it. They they interviewed everybody, I swear to God. And I, I, I may have done it months and months before. I did not remember the interview. I still don't remember the interview. Someone showed it to me after the race because someone said, like, you said that you would help kick Mavka Flesk. And I'm like, no, I didn't. I would never I say something that was me. That stupid. And I like literally, I think, you know, you had to show it to me. Like, I was like, I don't believe this. Like, oh my God, I did. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. But, um, but that is the, yeah, the, the, that mentality that when you get in the race and this was a learning curve for me after running the 215 was that like, when you get into a race with these people, they're just people. They're just, everybody has good days and bad days. And you've got to, at some point learn that they're just people. Um, and I often thought of, uh, Kenny Moore tells a story about kind of freaking out when Frank Shorter won the gold medal and, uh, telling Frank, like, I don't know what it is. It's just something about this. I can't process that you're the gold medalist. And Frank goes, Oh, I can tell you what it is. It's that I'm just Frank Shorter and the gold medalist is superhuman. And that was the thing. It was that he had known Frank. He knew who he was. He wasn't intimidated by Frank. And the gold medalist was this superhuman thing. But the reality is, is as much as you or I or anybody else might look back at Frank Shorter, who for all rights should be two-time Olympic gold medalist, Supinski was doped, um, as the embodiment of the unstoppable Olympic gold medalist, he's still just a man. He's still just a guy. Um, and you, when you're racing him, you have to approach it that way, that there's no difference between beating them and beating Mario or beating you know, whoever else that you might get into a battle with. Well, I think that's such an important perspective, even for non-elites who are listening to this, especially this day and age, because people go on Strava, they go on Instagram, they see what other people are doing, and they end up putting their competitors on a pedestal and saying, mm-hmm. there's no way that I, I could ever I could ever do that. And, and I think mm-hmm. you know that ends up paralyzing a lot of people and preventing them from reaching whatever potential they have. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the, I think, uh, preconceived notions of what you can do in a race are never helpful. Um, it's good to have a race plan. Um, it's good to have a sense of not racing stupid and not getting sucked into the same mistakes. But I think that at a certain point in all races, you just need to be running as hard as you can. And the result is what the result is that it will tell you what you can do. And there, that may not be as good as you thought you were, or it might be way better than you thought you were, than you dreamed you could be. Um, but just, just let it find out. Um, and I think sometimes we don't because of fear of failure. I think sometimes it's fear of success, but, um, I think that, and sometimes I think you're right, it's intimidation, but I think that letting that go and just saying, no, I'm going to find out today. I'm here to find out. 
we've been going for a long time and I want to be <laughs> respectful of what you still have to get done today. But before we wrap this up, you're in a very different place in your life right now. You're married, you have a kid, you have another one on the way like almost any day now. You're teaching, you're doing a little bit of coaching. What is your relationship with running training and competition look like at this moment in time? I'm actually uh, the happiest I've been in a long time. I ran with that injury for um, that I, I talked about ending my career. I ran with that for a number of years. I ran my best races with it hurt just in the shorter distances. I was unable to do the longer stuff and with no diagnosis. Um, and then eventually um, it got worse and I they found it and uh, I had a surgery on it two years ago. Um, and then I came back a little I was coming back very conservatively by my standards, but I don't think it was conservative enough in retrospect. And uh, I didn't see big gains. It was better than it had been before the surgery, but not much. Now that muscle is starting to get stronger. And um, I'm in a place now where for the first time, literally since that build up to the Olympic trials, I've been able to do things like a 12 mile tempo run. Um, I did a long run last weekend of 19 miles and I didn't lose control of my my leg at all. Um, And I haven't done that in, yeah, 10 15 years, you know, I guess 10 years now, 11 years, 12 years, whatever it is. So, um, I'm really, really enjoying that. I found a balance in my personal training that I can fit with my lifestyle. Um, I'm getting to do a little coaching through the online coaching, which I, I thoroughly enjoy. Um, cause that was one thing I was definitely missing. Um, I love family life. I, I love, um, being a dad. Um, I just, yeah, I'm just thrilled with that. Um, my goals in terms of running are shifting. I, because suddenly I can do things that I couldn't do before. Um, but I don't know. I'm going to accept whatever it is. I've decided that everything I do at this point is frosting. Um, and I'm not gonna, um, put the, the horse, the cart before the horse at all. I'm just going to let it come. And I, I have my things I need to do to take the next step. And so I'm just focused on those right now. Um, but yeah, so all of that is 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 definitely I'm just in a, a really good place with all of that and really enjoying the process. Um, I found I can't do the miles uh, that I used to do mm-hmm. just time wise, but also physically. Um, I'm, I'm one torn muscle is not all the damage I have done with the way that I trained over the years. Um, but I found a a way of training where I'm making very good gains. Um, much quicker than I expected, uh, on much lower mileage. Um, so that's good. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm really happy. I love hearing that. And selfishly, I love hearing it because I'm in a very similar place minus that same specific injury, but I dealt with my own shit and I definitely didn't get to the level that you did, but I had some pretty traumatic stress fractures that, you know, mm-hmm. really crushed me in my first few years out of school. But Right now, I'm at a point where I'm not running as much. I'm putting in steady 50-mile weeks, and maybe I'll get that up to 60, but I'm enjoying the hell out of it right now. Um, You mentioned love of the game, and that's sort of what I've been feeling right now since there are no races on the schedule. I'm doing this for the love of the game, and I find myself like surprisingly kind of fit, and I'm like, huh, well, at some point, these races are going to come back. Uh, and mm-hmm. it'll be fun to jump in one of those. And my perspective is different than it was when I was in 
my early 20s. And there's something that's really rejuvenating and exciting about that and has me looking forward to these next couple of years. I'm like, huh, maybe I can be competitive as a master's runner. Maybe Nate Jenkins and I can battle it out in battle a cross country race at club nationals a few years from now. How fun would that be? That would, that would be a, uh, that would, that would definitely be a nice bookend, wouldn't it? Um, now I had, and you can cut this last part if you like, I don't care. I had warned you, I had a couple of questions for you. And so if we're getting close to the end, I still have two things I need to ask you. The first is functional. Um, you and I come from very uh, similar backgrounds as we've discussed tonight. And uh, we now both do the majority of our coaching in the internet, online, medium. Um, and I was just curious um, because to me, when we were running together, you seemed in terms of training like a man without a country. You had tremendous knowledge, but you didn't seem to have picked a horse or an overarching philosophy or whatever. And that was may have been wrong. That may have been my outside perspective. No, that's exactly but right. I, I am desperate knowing that you're now having had a tremendous amount of success and it, it, this is something that you've stuck with, which I'm so glad that you did. But I, I need to know, like, what do you consider sort of your... I don't know, I, your core philosophy or your overarching coaching belief? Well, I think you just nailed it. I do not adhere to any one philosophy or system. I take things from different philosophies and systems. My coach in college, Karen Bowen, was a big Jack Daniels disciple. I felt like mm -hmm. I knew his philosophy in and out. It had worked for me as an athlete, and I've definitely taken some stuff from that, cruise intervals, tempo runs, things of the sort. Uh, and I've been fortunate enough to go to a couple of Jack's clinics over the past few years and gotten to ask him questions myself. Because of you and a lot of the writing that you've done about your experience with Canova and all the stuff that he's been generous enough to put online, I've dissected that in and out. And when I'm coaching a lot of my marathoners now, I am taking bits and pieces of that. But to your point and in your own experience, it's a very difficult type of training and without the proper base phase leading into it. And that's something that's really hard to do with post-collegiates who aren't mm -hmm. doing this at a, at a professional level. It's hard to really follow that type of program to the T, but there are definitely elements of it that I can pull out. But I've looked at the Aussie systems. I've looked at the Japanese systems. I've looked at what other American coaches past, present have done. And I, and I pull little things. And for me, I think one of the benefits of coaching online is I am coaching people individually. And I have the freedom to mm -hmm. do that versus in, say, a collegiate environment or even a club environment where you've got 12 people showing up the same day and you're trying to coordinate workouts. And you almost have to have a system for it to work because otherwise everyone's mm -hmm. just working out on their own. But because most mm -hmm. of the people that I coach are on their own, are individually, I can tailor it to them. And I think for me, the way that I approach coaching is from a very personal standpoint. So I get to know the people before I even write them a workout, or I try to, and I get mm -hmm. to know them better over the time that I work from them. And I dive into their history, like what they were doing in their teens, did they run in college, what they've done you know, over the past several years that I wasn't working with them and, and try and understand like what worked for them, what didn't, what got them into trouble. And and just like just having that that basis of understanding. And I think mm -hmm. one thing that I've learned over the years, and I don't really know how to describe this other than the fact that it's intuitive, is I can look at what someone's doing 
not every, I, I don't get it right every time, but I can look at what someone's doing and say, okay, well, this has clearly worked for you, um, but here's what I think is missing. And mm-hmm. I go about tweaking things in that way. And with some people, that is maybe a lack of aerobic work, and we've got to bump up their mm-hmm. volume, or I've got to get them to actually you know, speed up a little bit on their distance days because they've just been going too dang slow. Um, or maybe it's the fact that Hey, this this person actually they've they've got a big engine, but they're not a great athlete. So we've got to work on different aspects of their athleticism so that they can actually like handle the training that I'm trying to throw at them. So um, you're very spot on, I think, in your assessment of my approach. Like I am very much a, a man without a country, and I've been very careful not to tie myself to a particular philosophy because. One, I, I just think that would be hard to implement with a lot of individuals. But part of the fun for me as a coach is working with people on a one-on-one level and really trying to personalize things for them. And mm-hmm. and for me, like I've found through trial and error over the years, like what's the right number of athletes that I can work with. But you know, just rewinding a couple of months, I had eight women at the Olympic trials this past February, and I'm looking at all of their training and. There were some similarities in terms of the key, some of the key workouts that we would try and hit, mm-hmm. um, some parallels in terms of volume, but on the low end of things, I had one woman who was around you know sixty five to seventy miles a week, and I had a few who were up ninety to one hundred. If I take an athlete first approach and I just really try and understand you know what is it that that they're good at that they've been good at that they've responded well to what is it that they that they haven't and i and I try to solve that for where they are at a given point in time. I don't know if that answers your question, but that is how it does beautifully that is how i that is how I approach the the athletes that I work with now that being said if i if I did have a group of people and I do have some athletes that I, I see on a weekly basis here where, where I live that I coach, but we don't have like a group training environment. Um, I would have to think about that a, a little bit differently and it would probably change some of the races that they do. But you know, the goal in that particular situation would be to get them all to work together as much as possible. Um, and for that to happen, you know, you almost have to have a, a bit of a system and, uh, an approach that you're trying to get everyone to buy into and follow. But for me, coaching a lot of individuals, I really do try to individualize it. And I've had success with that approach. And I've just realized that that's the, that's what works for me. That's the type of coach that I am. And it also helps me to not be too rigid in my thinking um, because I can, you know, I can, I can change things if, if I need to, but if you have like a system in place where it's like, okay, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, then you've got to do this. And it progresses, you know, in a very um, particular way and something comes up, athlete gets hurt, they take longer to recover from a workout uh, and it throws the whole thing off. Like I just don't deal well in that situation. So I've, I've, purposely set things up where we can be kind of fluid and adaptable. And the way that I write training with my athletes too, I have a framework that I'll set out for a cycle, you know, 12 weeks to a marathon, or maybe it's six months uh, and we've got, you know, six to eight races strewn about during that period of time. I'll I'll have a framework and when I want to hit on certain things with that athlete, but I only write the schedules out a week at a time. Uh, and I look at what they did the week before and if they were able to complete the training and and if they were, then, okay, then we're going to proceed as planned. But if they didn't, and as you know, a lot of times they, it, it just doesn't happen for whatever reason. It's like, okay, well, we're going to tweak some things because I don't want to skip steps and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Thank you. 
I, uh, that is not the answer I expected. Um, but it was a phenomenal answer. Um, but I think the next time we are on the same side of the country, we need to have a run dedicated to just hashing this one out. Um, (laughs) that's going to be a long freaking run. (laughs) Yeah. Um, the second question, um, is entirely different topic. Um, but it's the real elephant in the room when you, you have two central mass men of the 1990s who were runners talking running Mike Smith. Um, I don't know about you. I idolized him when we were in high school. He was a year older than me. I think that makes him a couple of years older than you. Um, and he was like second at all States behind the eventual footlocker champ, uh, opposite Muhammad. He was a star at Georgetown. Um, he also qualified for the, he was at the same marathon trials I was at. He may have qualified for another trials or at least a U.S. championship on the track. He made a Pan Am junior team. Uh, and now is this coaching guru um, at uh, Northern, Northern Arizona. Arizona. And I'm just wondering, um, do you, like me, find yourself feeling like you've just spent your entire running career, no matter what you've done, you've carved your own space. It's it's impressive. I'm blown away. I carved my own space at, at one time. You still feel like you're kind of in Mike Smith's shadow? Because I do. <laughs> That's a very interesting question because, uh, spoiler for anyone listening to this, because I think it will come out before that, I am interviewing Mike Smith next week for the podcast. And there are a lot of things that I want to get into with him, but not really feeling like I'm I'm in his shadow at all, because he is someone that I have just always looked up to from the late 90s on. I think you graduated 99, if I'm not mistaken, from high school. Yes. Mike Smith was 98. I was 2000. And I got into mm-hmm. the sport in 1998 didn't know jack shit about cross country or running, but I would read about it in the Worcester Telegram Gazette newspaper I eventually worked for years later every week. And Wachusett Regional, where Mike ran, has had, actually, I don't know as much about their program now, but at the time, they had a a bit of a dynasty going. They had yeah. Mike Smith. They had Pat Bohm. Uh, eventually, they had like Joel Laguerre. Um, yeah. Mike, uh, who's the other? Mike Banks went through there. Yeah. Um, just amazing program and amazing history and just some great athletes that came out of there. So from the time that I got into the sport, Mike Smith was just someone who was in another stratosphere to me. And he's always been that way as an athlete from high school, college, and beyond. I just never came close to even being in like, you know, in, in with, within shouting distance of him, like, you know, in a race. And I've just always had that kind of perspective. And now with what he's done over the last several years coaching, yes, I, I absolutely admire him. Doesn't have anything to do with what Galen Rupp did at the end of February. I mean, what he's done with Northern Arizona and Georgetown before that is pretty remarkable. And to think yeah. that it was another central mass kid who did that, I mean, really inspires me on one level, but still to to this day gives me, I mean, I don't want to, look, I don't want to coach college um, or have a, a program like that, but it is just like, it, it keeps me hungry um, to see like his level of success and be like, well, you know, I'm from the same place, same thing with you and like Tim Ritchie's from Worcester, Massachusetts, and I see what he's gone on mm-hmm. to and I'm like, well, you know, that really shouldn't have any effect on on what I'm able to do and I'm staying my own path but I still look at like what guys like him and uh you and like 
Tim Ritchie and, and other and shit John Green who just coached uh, Molly Seidel to the Olympic team uh, is from went to St. John Shrewsbury and I mean I don't know as much about him well, I eventually like to or something like that who was out of Central Mass who finished in the top 10 yeah for the men. I, I mean eventually I you know I'd love to have a conversation with John but like with Mike specifically it's just like he's someone I've, I've admired since I got into the sport and I've always looked at him as somewhat untouchable, even though he's been very generous with his his time to me. Um, and I'm excited to learn from him when I interview him on the on the podcast next week, and you know, trade some similar war stories to what we did here. Even though I, I was never that close to him, like in a race, but um, yeah, I mean, he, you know, what he's been able to do just just really like inspires me. Even though I've taken a different path, I coach a different type of athlete, but seeing the level of success that he has reached as a coach in the last few years really inspires me to stay with it and try to be the best that I can be within my own domain. I've got one more question to ask you before we wrap. One story I want to hear you tell, but in one of your blogs over the past few years, I think you were training for the Boston Marathon. You were putting in a lot of miles with Ruben Sanka, who also yeah. ran at UMass Lowell, was an Olympian for Cape Verde in 2012, yeah. ran in the Olympic marathon in London. And you guys went out and put in a Canova style super compensation day. And I think by yeah. the end of it, you had totaled 30 ish miles for the day. You'd done a lot of work. Mm-hmm. There was like 10K tempo, 1K repeats. It was a, you know, miserable New England winter day. And I mm-hmm. believe you ended up curled up on the side of the road, or maybe it was on like the steps of a church or something like that, because you couldn't even complete the cool down. And then Melissa, your wife had to come pick you up. And I believe you had some other commitments that day. I just want to hear that story because I remember reading the entry and I was like, if I didn't know Nate, I would say this is the most unbelievable over embellished story that I've ever heard. But I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that it is absolutely true. Yeah. So our workout was, um, 10k uh warm up uh 10k at easy tempo pace uh, i think we were 34 minutes um and then a 10k at goal marathon pace which i think was like 32 flat um and then you come back in the afternoon um warm up and you do another 10k at the same 34 minute pace and then you do 10 by a thousand at half marathon goal pace give or take so i think we were aiming for like three flats three o's um it's a session i've done before it's brutal um and I usually don't do warm downs with it, but, um, we were doing these from my town home at the time. Um, and it was about three miles to get to where, uh, the loop was that we had measured out and it was flat, um, flatter for the, the work. Morning session, uh, went with no problem. Uh, Ruben went home, um, you know, shower, eat, all that and came back. Uh, I had a family, my wife's family, um, coming over and we were going to go out um, to eat or something. I forget it. Maybe it was someone's birthday or there was, there was something like that, uh, going on. So they were all going to basically be at my townhome when Ruben and I finished the second session, uh, so that we could head out. Um, for the second workout, um, the, when you do this thing, the, the warm up for the second workout is hell. And then once you start the workout, you realize you don't actually feel that bad. And so, that's how it goes. We get through the 10 K no problem. And we start doing the one K repeats. Um, and I think after six repeats, I ran out of glycogen. And so I ran like a three eighteen, give or take. 
and um, Ruben ran fine. And I told him, I'm done. Like, I'm finished. Um, I'm not going to keep pushing on. Um, but I know this neighborhood, I will, I'll time your thousands and cheer you on. I'll cut like through on cutover streets and stuff. So, um, I basically at this point just start jogging uh, at a steady, I had to run about six minute pace, um, to get to these different places. And Ruben finishes the workout. Um, he runs four more kilometers. So unfortunately we're still three miles from home. It's getting dark. Um, and I am just like, in just a bad place, just hanging on Ruben's shoulder, trying to, to get back to my apartment. And, um, we get down to this, uh, rotary where, uh, there's a, a Unitarian Universalist church, big old New England church, beautiful church, um, on one side of the rotary. And, uh, we're across the street from that, across the rotary from it. And Ruben just stops running. And I'm like, Ruben, buddy, what are you doing? And he doesn't seem all that with it. And he says, Oh, I'm done. And I was like, oh, well, yeah, I mean, I'm done too, you know? And he's like, no, no, I'm done. And I'm like, well, we're we're like a mile away. And he's like, I'm done. And he's just like repeating this. And I'm like, oh God, okay. And so I'm like, oh, oh, okay. Okay, no problem. Uh, We'll, I will go get someone. Just stay right here. Just stay right here. And he sits down in the snowbank. And I say, okay. Um, and so now I'm running as hard as I can. Cause that's Ruben is as, as tough as nails. Um, and I'm like, this isn't good. So I'm going as hard as I can, but I can't really go. I'm, I'm running seven minute pace. If that, you know, I'm just like turning myself inside out and I, I get back. Um, and my wife's whole family is there and I like come upstairs. I'm soaking wet. I'm exhausted and I'm not all that with it myself. And I tell him, like I just left Ruben on the side of the road. He he was sitting in a, in a snowbank. He said he was done. I, I need someone to go. We got to go get Ruben. Someone get me my car keys. And they're like, you're not going anywhere. I'm like, I we got to get Ruben. They're like, yes, we've got to get Ruben. You're not going. So like her whole family like scatter. <laughs> they like all go and get in their cars. Um, and then they're like calling me and they're like, where did you leave Ruben? And I'm like, I I, I told you, I left him. Like I told you exactly where I left him on the snowbank on the, the corner of such and such. And they're like, he's not there. And I'm like, I didn't make this up. I didn't like, and they're like, no, he's not there. So they're like driving around, driving around. And my brother-in-law just sees what he says, looks like a snow covered, like huddled mass in the church doorway, which is like across the street from where Ruben's supposed to be. And he said he sort of like almost kept driving, but he's like, I, it's probably just like a bag of something, but I got to go up there. And he goes up and it is Ruben, like huddled up in the corner of, in this church doorway. And uh, he like says, Ruben, you got to come with me. And Ruben's like, uh, no, I, I, you know, I'm waiting, I'm waiting for Nate. And he's like, I know I, I'm, I'm here for Nate. I, I'm, I'm his brother-in-law. Like we've met, you know, like, and he talks Ruben into the car and like brings him back. Um, and so they get back. And by then, um, I think either my wife or someone had stayed back with me and they convinced me to take a hot shower. And so then we get, they get Ruben back. They put him in a hot shower and um, they've made the decision that whatever family thing is off and they'll just pick up a bunch of takeout. And they sort of ask like what we want. And Ruben and I are just listing like anything. Like we're just like, yeah, like Fuddrucker sounds good or pizza or, and they buy everything. And so we sort of sit there for a couple hours eating this mountain of just trash food. Um, and just sort of until Ruben sort of gets 
to his wits about him and is like, oh, okay, all right. And we sort of joke about it and he goes home. But yeah, that was, uh, we shouldn't have done the warm downs. What were the total numbers for the day in terms of mileage and such? You know, that's a good question. I do know when, when I've done it generally, it usually comes out as an over under on 30 miles for the day. Um, and you're looking at about 40 kilometers of that being up tempo fast, not necessarily marathon pace fast, but pretty close to it average. Um, so you're looking at about 30 miles total, um, and about 24 miles of that at sub five thirty mile pace. If you're listening to this, don't try that at home. Yeah, unless don't you do that one at home. Well prepared for it. Uh, but I had to ask that question because I remember reading that entry years ago and I was like, you know, next time I talk to Nate, I've got to ask him about this because I know it's true, but it'll sound better from his mouth than it does on the page. So I appreciate you sharing it. I think that no is a good place to wrap up this conversation. Uh, we could have gone another two hours at some point we will hopefully on a run next time i'm back in massachusetts but sounds like a plan nate jenkins thank you so much for the past couple hours this was a lot of fun thank you all right another episode in the books thank you so much for listening in if you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend about it or throw up a post on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook and encourage your followers to subscribe to the show. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you're listening to this on, which only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me. My thanks to both Soar Running and The Feed for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Right now, Soar is giving all listeners of the Morning Shakeout podcast the chance to win a spring kit bundle comprised of your choice of any top, bottom, and accessory from Soar's range of products. All you have to do is head over to soarrunning.com slash themorningshakeout. That's S-O-A-R running.com slash themorningshakeout and enter the prize draw. That is it. The winner will be selected at random and entries close at midnight on Sunday, May 3rd. Also, SOAR is offering free global shipping to Morning Shakeout listeners throughout the month of April. When you check out at SOARrunning.com, enter the code SHAKEOUT, that's all caps, in the promotion box, and they won't charge you for shipping no matter where you live in the world. The Feed is a one-stop shop for athletes to fuel their training, stay healthy, and recover quicker. Their online store offers a selection of over 200 different sports nutrition products, supplements, and recovery devices. Whether you are looking to stock up on healthy snacks or improve your training or recovery, visit thefeed.com slash morning shakeout to save 12% off your next order with The Feed. That's thefeed.com slash morning shakeout. I'd also like to give a shout out to my rock star team here at The Morning Shakeout. John Summerford of BearsRecords.com, who handles the production and makes this show sound as good as it does week in and week out. Jeff Stern for social media and editorial assistance. And Chris Douglas for managing sponsorship sales. I couldn't do what I do without their help. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. And you'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. 
Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. <laughs>